0: Welcome to episode 288 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. For our final show of 2018, we're going to take a look forward into the realm of 2019, talking about emerging tech trends to watch, from AI to gene editing, and a lot more interesting technologies as well. So, Dirk, let's start off uh, by talking a little bit about how artificial intelligence has sort of come to the fore, has become a, you know, a major tech news hype trend. Like, you know, AI is, is you know, the next emerging technology, I think, at least in the minds of uh, public discussion. And so one of the things in an article that you pointed out to me in uh a uh, fast company that I found very interesting was pointing to some software that basically made it possible for designers to begin putting together the elements of, uh, you know, you know, machine learning elements so visual coding as it were for artificial intelligence. And so what this says to me is well number 1 that the technical aspects of artificial intelligence are going to be impenetrable I think for many designers, you know, myself included. And so having a visual Interface that sort of reveals the system and how the connections are made and and how things how the rules are set and and how things interact is uh, is going to be important to getting more uh, call it non technical people involved uh, in the creation of AI systems. Uh, so so I found this completely fascinating because it, it felt like a step towards you know making it more accessible for. Folks who might, you know, also be interested at the, in the user experience side of things, uh, which you know, of course, we uh, have a user experience studio. You know, we care very much about it. So, so to me, that's that's a positive development and and something I think we're going to see more of in 2019. Your thoughts?
1: Well, in terms of the particular article, um, so it's it is a it is showing the concept for a graphical user interface for programming artificial intelligence. And the concept and idea are great. The reality, I mean, you know, I'm not going to hold my breath, right? So the article cites Squarespace as the example. And Squarespace is uh, a service which you can use to sort of cobble together a website without a designer that's that's fairly professional. And, you know, Squarespace is old technology. And it's it's notable that they can only cite Squarespace, not something more modern and recent and interesting. It's been a a very poor history of graphical user interfaces as intermediaries for software engineering and programming. Uh, Yeah, they might be able to make little simple websites work. um, But beyond that, more complex, more interesting, more powerful things are not able to be Composed or uh, created by a designer, it still requires a, 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 a true programmer, a true software engineer. So the notion that suddenly for artificial intelligence they have this great, beautiful plug-and-play—you know, any—you know, any creative professional can use it. Here's my AI software. I'm super skeptical about. There's just no track record in uh, software in general of graphical user interfaces totally, you know, disintermediating the the engineering component and allowing us to plug and play um, code complex things. It just isn't it just isn't real. So cool, great. If they could make it work, light with magic, awesome. But eh, you know, just a just a concept at this point.
0: Yeah, I mean so I take it that the I mean the Squarespace reference I, I think is more to the you know conceptually, right? Like the the um the way in which you know, it would operate, right? But if there was um, a
1: better conceptual example, they would have used it, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, there are enterprise-grade systems that allow business processes to be assembled together in, in more of a, a, a visual-type interface. So I think Systems does, you know, some of that. And now, I mean, there's, there's a desire to create uh, no-code systems so that business analysts can do a similar style of um, app call it assembly or, or design. So I think conceptually, it's something that people really would would like to ha- have happen. And, but as you pointed out, at least on the design side of things, and especially you know with this uh, sort of creating uh, the visual design for things um, supported, the, the code underneath is suspect, right? So I can remember sort of early in uh, the days of the nascent web, you had uh, tools like Dreamweaver from Macromedia, right, uh, originally before Adobe bought yeah, them. Yeah. And the idea was that you weren't going to hand code things, you were going to assemble things visually. Um, and so the feedback from from engineering usually was, hey, this code is not, you know. It's I mean, crap. It, yeah, it <laughs> wasn't really meant to integrate with the with the code that was being uh, hand generated, and so you know, coding in a in a text editor was you know a sign that you knew really what you were doing versus yeah. uh, dragging things around in in, in a GUI uh, like Dreamweaver. So, all that being said, I think that what Dreamweaver did do was open the gates for a lot of folks who you know may may have not had the mind for coding or really, you know, the time or inclination or whatever the excuse was, right? I know I'm not, you know, a, a capable coder in in any sense uh, of the term. So, so from a prototyping standpoint, you know, maybe Dreamweaver is an interesting product was. or was, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so maybe these AI, uh, that are assembled using code as, uh, visual interface, um, you know, maybe they aren't, you know, production grade or what have you. But um, I, I think even from an idea generation, prototyping, lightweight testing, some, you know, uh, bringing these to a broader audience, I think, has value. And, and I can't, you know, I, I, I think as we move forward, the, the need to allow this technology to be accessible to a broader range of people uh, I think is is going to be
1: really important for a number of reasons. Sure, and in this particular example, I mean, look, maybe they'll have something and it will be working great. So that that's certainly a possibility. The other thing to keep in mind, though, is the business model. So this is proprietary; it's released by a specific company. They have uh, models around installation fees, ongoing subscription fees, and so you're again, you're within this this closed environment of whatever the tools that this company is going to make available. It's not like, you know, giving you access to a a global open source AI repository of wonders. You know, you're, you're locked into whatever, whatever these cats are, are making for you. So uh, there's just a lot of, of limitations and and questions, but it certainly is beautiful and conceptually interesting. Right. So
0: that's uh. Uh, One of our trends to watch in 2019, the, uh, call it the democratization of uh, artificial intelligence in in some manner or another. Let's uh, move on then to uh, some of the other emerging technologies that we should pay attention to in 2019. Dirk, you did some uh, comparative work taking a look at a research report from Lux Research. Tell me, what, what did you discover as
1: you were poking around? Yeah, so it's interesting. So Lux Research is a Boston-based uh, research company, you know, specializing in in helping companies to sort of analyze emerging tech and and do do consulting work in that space. And so they did a, the top nineteen emerging technologies for two thousand nineteen. They had previously done the top eighteen for two thousand and eighteen. And so, well, you know. I'm, kind of a nerd. And so I happily jumped into a spreadsheet and compared the two. Uh, And there were a few different trends I found interesting. Um, So in general, the lists change wildly. Um, About half of what was on the 18 list is not on the 19 list. So there's a bunch of things that are more this is their moment, and then they're, they're kind of gone again. But So there, there were a couple of things that, that were specifically interesting. Number one is um, the top thing in 2018 is the same as the top thing in 2019. In 2019, they called it machine learning and AI. In 2018, they were calling it machine learning and deep neural networks. So it's also interesting to see how their language evolves and changes over time um, around what they think is important. But it really underscores the fact that you know, AI, machine learning, like uh, these are really dominant right now in terms of the, the emerging technologies, the trends, the, the sort of cutting-edge stuff year over year. Um, so that, that was interesting to me. Uh, the second one was number two on the list was wearable electronics. And that's interesting from a few perspectives. Number one, last year they called it smartwatches. So big evolution from a specific device to a very broad category. Where they're seeing the broader application of the things that make a smartwatch interesting in in a whole variety of wearable technologies, so that expansion really speaks a lot to the market. Um, second, too, is the raise in rank. Two thousand eighteen, it was ninth on the list, and and this year it's second on the list. So that's you know that's one really really to watch from a Lux Research perspective. So I thought I found that interesting, and then um, also. New to the list in number six, so not even one of the top 18 from last year, but now all the way up to number six is battery fast charging, which interesting, you know, to that's that's more um, I, I know there's certainly technologies behind it, but from a consumer perspective, that's more of a feature, right? You know, my my battery can charge quickly. That's a feature. It has much broader applications, um, particularly on, on the B2B side, on the industrial corporate side. But you know, for that one to just kind of show up, it it's sort of raising a signal flare that hey this is something that that might be important. So those were um a few things that, that stood out to me, John.
0: Yeah, so so let's dig into uh, uh wearable electronics a little bit more because you know that's uh seems to be a a rising and important emerging technology. Now for me personally having used uh these you know awful fitness trackers for I don't know like seven years now or however long And sort of getting uh, blisters from the first fitness tracker I ever used. Um, I'm using a a heart rate monitor right now when I um, uh, when I bike, but um, I find wearable electronics distasteful. (laughs) Distasteful. That's an (laughs) interesting take. I just I kind of don't like them because they're awkward. And you know I've really felt a freedom of not wearing a watch. Uh, I used to you know wear a Mm -hmm. uh, you know a lovely watch. And then, you know, my phone sort of takes care of that. So I, I suppose, you know, if you go to a nice event, you know, you can wear a nice looking watch. Other than that, you know, it's a piece of jewelry now. Yeah. I, I like not wearing stuff. I'm not saying I want an <laughs> embeddable, um, you know, an embeddable to track my fitness or whatever. And obviously when I'm at the gym, you know, cycling or whatever, um, yeah. you know, I want to know uh, details. But I, I think some of these, if they're going to get further adoption, I think they're going to be tied to very specific use cases around like, I mean, the obviously the Fitbit's a perfect example of, you know, where you really want to know about your fitness down to the, you know, nth degree mm-hmm. and, you know, some sort of motivator for you to take more steps. And so there are many examples of, of different ways you can, you know, apply that, um, you know, especially, you know, if folks have medical conditions and things like that, that, uh, uh, you know, diabetes is a perfect example of uh, you know a condition where people will want to uh, continuously be monitoring yeah. uh, things like blood sugar. But generally speaking, I've always felt that wearables were a transitional technology, uh, definitely an emerging technology, but but one that would give way to perhaps you know an embedded type technology or even one like using cameras to. Uh, to discover some of the same information. So there are algorithms that can tell you your, you know, your heart rate based on, you know, what your facial scan is doing, hmm. because, you know, they can detect the, the small capillaries, you know, uh, hmm. pulsing right at a certain level. So I've felt like wearables were a transitional technology. And that could just be my bias, um, because I'm not really a huge fan. But Dirk, I mean, you've, you've, worn wearables. I mean, you, and you don't wear them every day now. So I don't wear them at all now. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think I've heard you say like, yeah, I got the information I needed out of it and then I was done. Right.
1: Right. That's right. And now, of course, they're becoming more powerful where they can do more things and there would be more of a use case to have them, you know, working ubiquitously, but it will be embeddables. I mean, this is a transitional period. It's a transitional period that will last decades, not years, but it's a transitional period nonetheless. Embeddables just make more sense. I mean, the the wearables are clunky and clumsy in a whole bunch of ways whether it has to do with washing things whether it has to do with having things available in in uh, unusual and and difficult contexts i mean there's a bunch of reasons why wearables suck however there's also a bunch of reasons why collecting data that currently wearables are the only feasible way to collect is important right so yeah i mean it's just right. it's just here in the way it's here for now and it will it will go away at some point i mean it, just like a lot of other things will go away. I mean, our phone, um, all of that stuff will, will be some sort of embeddable or virtualized um, context. But again, that's no time soon. We're we're looking a ways down the path now.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent point. So another emerging technology that's going to light fire in 2019, if, if it hasn't already, is uh, uh, CRISPR and gene editing. Now, I noticed on our friends here at Lux Research, Gene editing for 2019, you know, it's, uh, it's at f- it's at four, and uh, 2018 was three. But
1: so it's up it's, at the top. It's up. It's up the top, at the top, and
0: based on sort of recent events, you know, where there were uh, live births of gene edited human beings, I would say the. Um, the horse, you know, is 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 racing around the track now. Yeah. That was something that happened in 2018 that I did not expect, you know, by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I had a particular date in mind when I thought that would happen, but I did not think it yeah. was going to be this year. Yeah. So, you know, with that consideration, I think – what that does is, you know, it does put it into the public eye in sort of a negative light, which is unfortunate, and I think which is exactly what the scientific community did not want to have happen. That being said, I think it's also up the ante, you know, for competitiveness around, you know, not just sort of uh, these, um, you know, editing of human genes, but all of the other aspects, uh, whether it's it's. you know, editing genes in in uh, animals or plants or, or what have you—it's raised the bar for all of that, intentionally or not. And whether that's good for the technology, probably not. Yeah. But that is going to be getting a lot of additional scrutiny by governments, by organizations, there's going to be a lot of ethical questions asked about CRISPR technology in 2019. So I don't know whether this is going to be a net positive for uh, for gene editing in 2019, but yeah. it's going to be big.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Amen.
0: So I think we can uh, you know, also uh, mention, and, and we've talked about this a bit on the show, um, but uh, uh 3D printing is is another one you know additive fabrication
1: more slightly more technical uh name for it Although they interestingly removed that distinction so in 2018 um it was it was their second you know highest technology and they called it 3D printing and additive manufacturing this year it's third instead of second and they just call it 3D printing so again it's it's interesting to see how the terms are are fluctuating from from their perspective of Uh, sort of, you know, analyzing the industry.
0: Yeah, I think this is a slightly under the radar uh, technology in comparison to sort of the the big news hogging items that AI and gene editing can be. 3D printing, you know, additive fabrication are not the stuff of headlines so much, you know, until you're you know, at least in the applications that are sort of immediately feasible. But what's amazing about this technology is it really changes the face of manufacturing, especially for sort of short order, complex, but smaller amounts of product, right? So it takes manufacturing from, you know, needing, you know, huge assembly lines to, a much smaller footprint. In fact, I think there's you know the possibility that you can at least be prototyping some complex machines now using you know all uh, additive fabrication. In fact, in Somerville, you know our our neighbor town down the road here on on Mass Ave, um, in Somerville there there are plenty of startups working in this space, and I think. Uh, you know in the past year we 've seen the debut of some some amazing metal three d printing mm-hmm. uh, you know so printing parts for motorcycles say that are you know extra light because they 've got uh, sort of very interesting honeycomb interiors uh, which are you know strong and yet uh, a lot lighter than you know having a solid metal part mm-hmm. yep. and so you know i 've seen some some demos of this and and it 's really I think, underappreciated how much this is going to transform manufacturing. Now, in terms of uh, over the course of 2019, I think we are going to see more production systems come online. So moving from the prototyping, which is very popular right now with 3D printing, and starting to move much more into the production space. Um, So I know uh, some companies are making it. So the prototype systems can be, You can have multiples of your prototyping system, which then serve as production. So you may have one of these machines in your design, uh, you know, research and design facility, and then a hundred of them on your factory floor in a warehouse somewhere. Right. Um, But that's 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 one methodology that I've seen for rolling this to to a production capacity. So American manufacturing, I think, you know, with these flexible. Uh, these flexible lines that can, you know, produce different kinds of parts, different kinds of products, uh, and then swiftly retool them to, you know, produce some other thing. I, I think that's part of the future of manufacturing. And I think, I think that's pretty exciting and something uh, we can watch for in 2019.
1: Yeah, I don't know about 2019. I mean, it's, I think it's something that's later as opposed to sooner, because we still have such a labor cost disparity between the United States and China or the United States and, and even down market from China, places like uh, Vietnam, for example. Um, it's just so much cheaper on the labor side in those places that I, I think we're still a ways away from the manufacturing being here in any meaningful um, quantity. Now, in the longer now, though, that will change because the the extremes are going to come towards the middle and the difference will reach a point where – It just makes sense. It makes financial sense for a company that which is, you know, motivated, you know, mindlessly by money as opposed to human considerations as well. It then becomes a no brainer for that company to say, hey, look, we need to bring this here because it's better for us. Even though we're still paying more on wages, the time saved, the logistic cost, all that other stuff makes this makes this the better play. The other factor, too which won't hit immediately, but at some point, we're not going to have giant container ships going over the ocean full of so many products. Due to global warming, there will be some kind of legislation or tariffing or something that's either a cost, um, you know, a pain for the people who are wanting to ship or just limits uh, based on not allowing sort of global trade to happen at that scale just in order to keep the planet okay. We're so backwards right now; it's a while away. But it's when those things start to happen that the, you know, bringing it to the U.S. will really start to take off.
0: So, just want to say uh, thank you to all of our tremendous guests in 2018. We had a lot of fantastic. Um, guests on the show. And I'm going to put together a little list and put it on SoundCloud of of our interviews over the past year. Uh, It's been a lot of fun. We actually had more guests on the show in 2018 than we did in 2017. So it was uh, terrific growth there. And we appreciate people taking the time to come and talk to us about emerging technologies, design, and ethics. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everyone, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening, or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you'd like to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett, that's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And, of course, the whole show is brought to you by GoInvo, a studio designing the future of healthcare and emerging technologies. You can check out GoInvo at GoInvo.com,
1: that's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at d that's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening.
0: So that's it for episode 288 of The Digital Life. And that wraps up our 2018 season. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next year.